I'm really excited about today's guest. We have Michael Howell, CEO of Cross Border Capital, an investment advisory firm and author of the book, Capital Wars, The Rise of Global Liquidity. If you want to understand what drives markets, you need to understand global liquidity. In this conversation, we do a deep dive into what is global liquidity, why does it matter, and what is it signaling right now? As a hint, Michael says we are seeing an inflection upward in global liquidity, and we explore the two big reasons why and the implications for markets. This was an interesting, wide-ranging conversation. We touched on a number of topics. We even got a little wonky at times. Uh, many folks believe, for example, that an inverted yield curve warns us a recession is fast approaching. Now, Michael explains why this isn't true and why the 10 and the 2 yield curve is a flaky predictor. Really enjoyed that part of the conversation. Um, I learned so much from Michael. I learned a lot from reading his book. I, I recommend that you pick it up. I think you'll really enjoy this conversation. And by the way, if you are new here, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. And if you're returning, thank you so much for your support. And if you don't mind, at the end of the episode, please feel free to leave a rating and a review and share the show. I really, really appreciate it. I appreciate you all, the listeners, and I hope you enjoyed this one. Michael Howe, CEO of Cross Border Capital and author of the book, Capital Wars, The Rise of Global Liquidity. It is so great to welcome you on the show. Thank you so much for joining me, Michael. Great pleasure, Julie. Great to be here. Well, I'm really excited to have this conversation with you. I think it's such an interesting time in our world. And you know, one of the places I always like to start with my guest is just getting their big picture, the macro view. Um, what is that for you today? And then we can start to zoom in on some of these ideas. Okay, I think the the sort of big picture, the uh, $64,000 question, if you like, is what's driving markets? What always drives markets is money flows. If you want to know what markets are going to do, watch the money, follow the money. And that's pretty much what we do. I mean, that was a, a legacy that uh, I inherited goes back to the days I worked at Salomon Brothers, uh, the U.S. investment bank back in the 80s and 90s. And Salomon was basically all about understanding money flows. That was the, uh, you know, the the remit, if you like, of the research department. Uh, that's what Henry Kaufman, who was uh, head of research, basically had pioneered. And uh, Salomon was all about understanding the flow of money and trading accordingly. As we know, there were big proprietary and very successful proprietary traders for many, many years. Yeah. Um, the money flows. I, let's go, take me back to that time. Um, that was the mid 1980s. Solomon Brothers, you all were really the pioneers of um, following the flows. What was it? Why was that so important to follow the flows? Well, I think there was a number of reasons there. I mean, one was that the world was becoming international very quickly. Uh, I joined Solomon Brothers International in London. Uh, it was basically just beginning its major international footprint then. It had offices in London, offices in Tokyo. It went on to dominate, as many people would know, uh, the, the Japanese financial markets. Uh, the US was so far ahead in terms of financial sophistication. The Japanese were always many steps behind in understanding what was going on in terms of futures, derivatives, whatever. Uh, Salomon Brothers really understood the dynamics of the JGB market, the Japanese government bond market. They basically, you know, swapped techniques that have been learned in the US. Uh, a lot of the things that we are now very familiar with in financial markets were actually invented uh, at Salomon Brothers 
uh, actually even before I was there. So things like understanding duration. Uh, duration was a concept that Marty Leibowitz, who was head of Bond research, basically had sort of plucked out of the history books, but uh, reinvented in a way. The yield curve was ultimately a Salomon Brothers invention, uh, how, we, how you trade the yield curve. Uh, and basically, you know, you just go on and look at the history of finance, look at long term capital, etc. It was all about understanding how to arbitrage uh, fixed income markets. Yeah, that would have been a really exciting time, I imagine, uh, to be like coming up in the ranks, like witnessing um, some of this pioneering work. Um, just so read uh, Michael Lewis's Lars Poker. That exactly. Pretty good, pretty good flavor of what went on. OK, so you it's like similar to that experience you'd say like your time there yeah i think it was i think there were parallels i mean there's you know a certain amount of fiction in that and sort of like poetic license but i think the he captured the flavor exactly yeah yeah i'm looking at my bookshelf i have a uh, liar's poker sitting on the bookshelf of uh, michael lewis um okay so flows is what really matters um what is it kind of signaling to you today can you kind of frame it up help us understand um where we are today and what are you gleaning from pay paying attention to flows? Okay, I think the first thing to do is to understand what we mean by the flow of liquidity. Liquidity, in our terms, the way that we define it, and actually, if you go back to the book you referenced, Capital Wars, there's some very detailed definitions in there about how we define liquidity. But basically, it's the flow of cash and credit through global financial markets. Think of it that way. And... What we're doing is we're tracking that. Uh, we track it at the moment across about 80 or 90 countries worldwide. So it's a very detailed and highly quantitative analysis. What we try and do is we try and reference that flow of liquidity and put it into a cycle so we can understand effectively where we are, where we come from, and ultimately where we're going to. And if you look at that cyclical development, that cyclical movement in liquidity basically uh, drives financial asset markets and then ultimately, the real economies. So you've got effectively a two-way linkage here, first into finance and then into real economic activity. Now, the point of, of um, talking about liquidity right now is that uh, it would have been apparent to many of your viewers that financial markets have suddenly been kickstarted upwards during 2023. And the reason for that is the global liquidity cycle is inflecting upwards after having uh, fallen very significantly in the previous two years. Uh, that fall was engineered by the central banks uh, after the COVID emergency where they'd thrown lots of liquidity into markets. They were in the process of taking that out very quickly um, because of the inflation threat, the spillover of inflation. But actually what you're seeing uh, as of, in fact, the low point on our data was around October of 2022, you're beginning to see an inflection upwards. And markets are very, very sensitive to these inflection points. It's the financial markets operate, as you know, at the margin. So a little bit more money goes a long way. Now, many people might dispute that and they might say, well, OK, this is simply uh, a sort of a, a bear market rally. It's fake, whatever. Just take a look at crypto. OK, this is not an investment recommendation for crypto. And I would say there's probably not a lot behind crypto. Uh, you know, that's a, uh, obviously a debating point. But crypto is purely a liquidity phenomenon, in our view. And if there is an absence of liquidity, crypto crashes. If there's more liquidity, crypto goes up. And what you've seen is a very significant rally uh, in most crypto assets, particularly Bitcoin. So that's one very important heads up. 
But then if you start to extend that and look at the character of what's been going on in the financial markets, you'll see that sector performance has been dominated by cyclicals and particularly tech has had a big bounce. Now, in uh, let's say in finance parlance and sort of putting on my Salomon Brothers hat, uh, technology is what is called a long duration investment. So most of the earnings out of tech is way into the future, which means it's very, very sensitive to very small perturbations in interest rates, bond yields, and liquidity. And so as liquidity is picked up, uh, what you've seen uh, is technology bouncing very significantly. So there's a lot of evidence that would tell you that there is an inflection going on in liquidity. Now, one important question, there's a corollary of that, is why is liquidity turning up? Particularly when the rhetoric of all the central banks and particularly Jay Powell is to say, look, we're still here for the long term. We're going to be holding rates high. We're going to nail inflation and don't expect a near-term change. Well, let me suggest there are two big changes in the world that we need to factor in. One of those is China. China, we know, has been in lockdown for many, many months because of COVID. It's emerging from that lockdown. And actually what the People's Bank of China, the Chinese Central Bank, has done is to basically plow a lot of liquidity into Chinese markets to help the economy uh, revive. OK, now the scale of that liquidity injection needs to be understood. Uh, it needs to be understood, not least because there are many pundits and analysts out there who claim that China is not easing. And I would uh, say that they're not looking in the right area or not understanding the process properly. If you look at how the People's Bank operates in China, they have been injecting something like three trillion yuan, in other words, renminbi, into the money markets in the last two months. That's a circa 450 billion US. If you put that into context, that three trillion yuan is three and a half times what they put in in the previous two years. They put it in in two months. So they're going for it. So there's been this injection of liquidity. And if you like, uh, Frankenstein's monster of just had a billion volts uh, surge through it and it's starting to walk again. And that is why commodity prices are moving up. That is why cyclical equities are, you know, are on a roll. Look at the German DAX index, a very cyclical stock market. It's moving exactly with this revival in commodities and in the Chinese economy. So number one is the Chinese reasoning. Now, how long will this go on for? I don't know. Nobody really has great insight into the decision making of China. But one would infer that it's likely to be maintained through this year because at all costs, the Chinese need to get their economy moving again. The second point is what's happening in the big economies. And let's take uh, the US as a prime example here. The defining event, I would argue, is the British guilt debacle in September of last year, which some of your listeners may well recall, but that was a time when an, the new incoming prime minister decided to tear up the previous economic agenda and start to go for tax cuts and a pro-growth budget. Now, whatever the merits or demerits of that particular policy, the fact is that it seriously upset the sovereign debt market in the UK and guilts, British guilts, the sovereign bond in the UK, sold off significantly. Now, the Bank of England reacted and managed to smooth that sell-off. But the key point to raise here is had that same sell-off occurred in the US Treasury market, 
given the fact the US Treasury market is the most important asset market in the world, we'd now all be toast. Okay, that would have been a devastating effect. So I believe that was a wake up call for the US authorities. And since that time, they have changed policy. They are using balance sheet now, Fed balance sheet, to maintain financial stability and maintain stability and the integrity of the US Treasury market. And they're using interest rates to try and control inflation expectations and nail the inflation bogey. Now, if you come on to that financial stability dimension, the Fed's balance sheet has unquestionably been shrinking through this time. They've rolled off treasuries. They're doing a QT. I have no question about that. But the key point is that that roll off of treasuries is not entirely a liquidity phenomenon. In other words, the Fed balance sheet itself is a, the wrong measure of liquidity because there are various nuances, which means that every item in the balance sheet doesn't always create liquidity and it doesn't always subtract from liquidity. And basically, if you drill down without becoming too wonkish here into the various items on the balance sheet, what you can say is that actually liquidity conditions from the Federal Reserve have flatlined at worst and arguably have picked up uh, since the low point in September. Now, two other pieces of, uh, of data, one particular piece of information, let me say. If you look at Bloomberg carries an index of treasury market depth, in other words, it tells you how much you can trade in US treasuries and sort of bid ask spread. So in other words, if you're a big institutional investor, have you got the capacity to trade heavily in US treasuries? That index, and we run a very similar one internally ourselves, bottomed in late September, coincident with the British guilt crisis, uh, and it subsequently moved up significantly higher. On our index, not quoting the Bloomberg one, on our index, ranged it between zero and 100. It got down to 10 in September. It's currently just over 50. So it's been a huge increase in market liquidity, I would argue, courtesy of the Fed. The Fed clearly has a remit to nail inflation, to provide employment. But above all, the Federal Reserve's job is to maintain the integrity of the sovereign bond market in the US, the US Treasury market. And that's what I think they're doing. And it echoes statements that Janet Yellen made at the time. So in other words, bottom line, QT is dead effectively in the US. Interesting. Okay, so QT is effectively dead here in the US. And In my view. Okay, in your view. And you point out that... Um, They've affect, they've increased liquidity in the market because of their I guess um, their actions. Can we explore like um, some of the implications? What this might mean in your view? Uh, what this could mean for markets? Uh, what are some of the bigger implications here? I think if you look at the um, if you look at the implications, there are uh, let's look at the three uh, maybe the three big markets: forex, um, equities, fixed income. If you look at the let's take First of all, the Forex market. I think this is mildly negative for the US dollar. Um, the dollar is uh, anyway adjusting from uh, a surge last year. Um, one of the things that I argue, in fact, in my book, Capital Wars, is that the dollar has been weaponized generally, but that's much more of a medium term phenomenon. And within that weaponization, there'll be periods, short term periods of strength and weakness. And currently, we're in a period of somewhat mild weakness. So I believe that the dollar was likely to adjust downwards by about 20% uh, from the peak seen uh, in the end of the third quarter of last year. We're about halfway through that adjustment. Okay, So 
In terms of currency, you're going to lose a little bit more if you hold US dollars, better to diversify into other currencies. Second thing, what about the fixed income markets? My view is that the fixed income markets, and let's take the 10-year treasury uh, note as a benchmark, uh, is likely to end this year uh, pretty much around current levels. Okay, And that is because you've got a two-way pull acting on the fixed income markets. Number one, uh, interest rate expectations will come down somewhat. I don't think dramatically, but I think they'll come off from current peaks because the economy will soften to some extent. Not dramatically, but it will soften. On the other side, you've got a wonkish concept that is uh, probably only known to bond investors called a term premium, which is the risk premium uh, for holding interest rate risk. That is at its lowest ever reading on our calculations. Um, it's very negative and it can almost only rise from here. And those are the two components of a bond uh, interest rate expectations and term premium. One is coming down, one is going up, it'll be a wash. So the bond market will largely, we think, be range trading through this year, okay? Um, that is a backdrop for uh, US equities. Slightly weaker dollar, sideways movement in bonds. I think what that means is that the, uh, the S&P will range trade through this year, okay? But the reason that it's there's opportunity is that unlike 2022, there'll be some big outperformers, okay? Last year, nothing went up. We all lost money pretty much everywhere. But this year, there'll be some big gainers. And in my view, those gainers will be in cyclicals, in emerging markets, uh, in precious metals, uh, and anything related to those areas. Mm -hmm. So is that like when you want to you want to pick your spot then? Correct. Gotcha. And you can probably make money, you know, in crypto. As I say, non-investment recommendation for crypto. But hey, look, it's the liquidity phenomenon. If liquidity is going up, it'll go up. I think that's a, that's an interesting way of putting. I haven't I haven't heard anyone um, put it that way. Like uh, crypto is a liquidity phenomenon. Uh, that that's fascinating to me. Like to hear it that way. Well, it's a little bit like gold or precious metals. Uh, they they tend to go up when there's monetary inflation. Um, the you know the the current generation or the younger generation of investors are probably a lot less interested in gold and a lot more interested in uh, substitutes like crypto. Yeah, yeah, that's that where makes, the marginal dollar is going. Makes sense. Um, there, there's such a wealth of information that you laid out in the um the last couple of questions. So I, again, I thank you so much for being on here and and like you know helping us understand uh, what's happening in the world because it is uh, such valuable information. Um, I wrote down a bunch of notes and just want to ask you some questions. Um, I'd love to kind of hear more of your thoughts on the economy and the outlook there. Um, and I know in the book, you pointed out that um, that the, 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 the 10 and the two uh, yield curve can be a bit of a flaky predictor. So I also want to get that. I want to hear from you about that because we also we often hear about, you know, an in, inverted yield curve that um, some folks say like a recession will be inevitable um, uh, within a, a certain time period after that happens. So let's start with more of your economic outlook. And then I want to hear more about that, uh, the yield curve as well. Okay, well, the, our thought process begins with the flow of liquidity. Uh, it then moves into understanding the fixed income markets. And if you get um, uh, those, if you like, behaving consistently, then you can start to draw out a view about equities 
and ultimately about what the real economy is doing. Uh, we never use the economy to predict the stock market. We always think of the stock market as a predictor of the economy. Okay, Financial markets are forward discounting mechanisms. Uh, they look forward, not backwards. And I'm always reminded of the uh, of the quip or the comment by the legendary investor Stan Druckermiller, who always said the, the best economist is the internals of the stock market. OK, uh, and what he means by that is that if you look at the relative performance, say, of cyclical stocks versus defensive names, if cyclicals outperform defensive, it's telling you the economy is reviving, the cycle is turning up and similarly vice versa. And that is exactly what's happening now. So it looks as if we're somewhat close to an inflection point uh, on the economy in the US based on what the stock market is saying. Now, clearly, that may be a fake breakout for sure. I take that. But then what about the fixed income markets? What are the fixed income markets saying? Well, if this is a normal cycle, what you would expect to see in fixed income is, broadly speaking, three features right now. And I would suggest you're seeing exactly those. Number one, you would expect to see volatility in uh, the fixed income markets starting to move down significantly. Now, in fixed income speak, there is an equivalent to the VIX index, which you'll be familiar with in equities, which is called the move index, uh, which is a measure of volatility. The move index is going down. OK, you're looking at lower volatility because investors are factoring in less interest rate movement now, or if there's interest rate movement, it's downside movement. The second thing that you're seeing is a peaking in credit risk. OK, so in other words, look at the spreads on US investment grade, look at uh, at high yield or maybe even junk. And what you'll see is the composite of those rates have already peaked in terms of spreads and they're coming down. And that's again what you should see at this stage of the cycle. The third thing is you should begin to see an upward inflection in the yield curve. Now, are you getting that? The answer is that you are and you aren't. If you start to look at longer dated tenors, uh, like, for example, the 510 spread, or even beyond that, maybe looking out to 20 years or whatever, what you'll begin to see is that those spreads, in other words, that yield spread is beginning to widen out again. In other words, longer dated tenors in the bond market are trading at higher yields than uh, nearer term tenors. It's not so obvious on the 10-2 or on shorter dated tenors. And the reason for that is that I would regard that uh, spectrum of yields as being very highly distorted or heavily distorted by uh, term premia in the bond markets being very, very negative. Now, again, this is a wonkish area, but let me just say that the term premia on a bond uh, plays a bigger and bigger role in the pricing of a bond the further out you go in terms of maturity. So in other words, a 10-year bond will have a bigger term premium component than a one-year bond. Now, why is that important? Because term premia are heavily biased downwards. They're big negative readings because of the shortage of collateral in the global financial system. Now, why is there a shortage of collateral? It's basically because there hasn't been a huge amount of issuance uh, in the last decade, let's say. There's been a big appetite for collateral because of regulation changes, things like Basel III, Solvency II, which have affected the banks and the insurance companies. Um, many other countries have not issued uh, as well as the US, but it's really the US Treasury market 
and the German Bund market that you would really classify as being pristine collateral. It's what the, uh, you know, this is what the uh, dealer banks or the banks want to hold uh, if they're, uh, you know, if they're, if they're lending against collateral. And the whole point is that the financial system globally, but particularly in the US, is now collateral based. Uh, it's not about you or I going into a bank and getting a bank loan. Uh, we're talking about wholesale money here. We're not talking about retail loans. We're talking about the wholesale money, many, many times bigger. And it's that money which is driving financial markets. And it's what's driving the bond market. Now, why have I gone down this sort of side road of talking about term premium? For the simple reason, that's what's biasing the yield curve, the 10-2 spread. And the 10-2 spread, as I, as I mentioned in the book, it's got a flaky track record anyway of, uh, of uh, hitting the recession points. Uh, it's not bad, but it certainly isn't fail safe. And if it's being heavily distorted by term premium, it's going to be a fairly useless indicator. So what you're seeing in the fixed income markets now, uh, you know, parche, what the yield curve is saying, is other measures are absolutely on track. They're telling you that the liquidity cycle is inflecting and it's moving up. And therefore, you'd expect to see the economy bouncing. Now, if you take what the fixed income markets are telling us about the economy, what you would expect to see is a turning point in the US economy around May of this year. Okay, So we're going to get a few more months of softness. There's no question about that. But we're near a turning point. And I think that's what a lot of the economic data is beginning to say. Now, if I take that statement as being a May date, I picked off, in fact, on my on my Twitter feed, which is at Cross Border Cap. Um, if you look at that Twitter feed, there was a a, a a tweet I put up, which I took from Capital Group, and Capital Group had done a an analysis which said that the stock market always uh, picks up six months before a recession. Okay, well, if May is what the fixed income markets are telling us, looks like the stock market's on track again, doesn't it? It's picking up about six months ahead of where the economy's inflection is going to be. So everything seems to be lining up. Now, of course, we can be wrong. But what I'm trying to say here is that we've got three pieces of information which seem to be going right. Liquidity has turned. The bond market is telling us that's a decent turn. And the stock market is discounting it, too. Wait, OK, so just to clarify, I just pulled up your tweet. Um, So the, and it says the bond market points to a May 20. 23 low in the US economy if stock markets move 6 months ahead of the cap of the economic low then this rally could be the real thing so far liquidity agrees and you have to capital group so i do you, am i kind of hearing that um that okay so that will be the low and up up from here that it's not going to be like some deep recession that some folks have been calling for i mean I, some folks are expecting that i guess they're more bearish than others what what is it signaling just to clarify well, i think there i think there are two two things to say uh, as regards this julie i mean one is that uh, a lot of people are resting their view of uh deep recession on the yield curve and how negative the slope of the yield curve is what I've tried to say is that there are good reasons why that's distorted. And it's not telling us about economic dislocation. It's telling us more about potential financial fragility uh, because of the lack of collateral. But one of the other things I said earlier on is the Federal Reserve is onto this. And the Federal Reserve is basically uh, now putting liquidity in because it wants to maintain the integrity of the sovereign debt market, the treasury market. This is the paramount. This is their paramount job. OK, lose the treasury market and you lose financial markets. and You lose the economy. 
Um, you know, look at the devastation that occurred in the GFC when effectively the Federal Reserve lost control temporarily. Okay, there was there was a freefall. Okay, deep recession. Don't want don't want to make that mistake again. So I think that number one, you're seeing uh, evidence that the Fed is in control, and there are reasons why uh, the yield curve is biased and giving a false signal. The other thing to say is to raise a hypothetical question: is that you know what you've got going on in Europe is another war, okay? And there has been, as many people will have noticed in the media, reports of a lot of uh, uh, assault weapons tanks uh, being sent out uh, from many countries to Ukraine. Now, a tank is not a defensive weapon. It's an offensive weapon, in my book anyway. And so that would suggest that the war is going to escalate even more. If you're uh, a politician uh, in the West, would you want to create a recession this year? I don't think so. It would be pretty inconvenient if you're going to up the ante and attacking Putin. So I don't think that anyone wants to create a big recession this year. OK, now I take all the points about, you know, Jay Powell wants to mimic Paul Volcker. He's a tough guy. He's going to nail inflation, all that sort of thing. I buy all that. But at the end of the day, there's been traction on getting inflation down. I think that if they're going to act like Volcker, and probably they will at some stage because the debt mountain is is uh, you know unbearable in many ways, it's too much debt around, better to do that in four or five years' time, allow a little bit of inflation to come through in the system, that will devalue your debt a bit and make it more workable, and then hit it four or five years down the road when the economies are stronger and the geopolitics look more straightforward. That is fascinating. Um, again, it's awesome to have you on just because there's a lot um, that might not be understood. Like the way you were pointing out um, a term premium uh, and kind of why that's, you know, messing with the, the yield curve. Um, and then pointing out here that the Fed uh, or risk premium, rather, um, and the Fed is being in control here um, and how with our debt, you, I, it sounds like with our debt situation, you need a little bit of inflation to solve for that. Is that correct? Yeah, That's I think it makes helpful. it easier. If you, you can devalue debt in real terms. I mean, the the US, you know, clearly has a debt problem. I mean, the fiscal arithmetic doesn't add up. But right. once you start to take a global perspective, then you see that, you know, actually, uh, the US is the cleanest shirt in the laundry here. Uh, a lot of other countries are in far, far, far worse shape than America is. And that would, should mean that the dollar at least, uh, you know, keeps its head up uh, through most of this uh, turmoil. Yeah, I like that. The cleanest uh, the cleanest shirt in the dirty uh, uh, laundry pile. I took some notes again from your book, and maybe I want to ask as another follow-on because, and I don't know why I wrote this line down, um, but in the book, you were, I guess you were kind of talking about how financial markets, they spin on fragile axes and the absence of liquidity often provides um, a warning of upcoming troubles. But here we've seen an inflection in liquidity. So I think it's probably, it probably bodes well. Uh, I also wrote down that central bankers should focus on financial stability versus phantom CPI targets. So is that what we're seeing the Fed do here right now? Um, as you mentioned, they're in control. They're focusing on the financial stability. What Help me understand. Yeah, I think absolutely. I mean, this is this, as I said, is the ultimate job of the central banks. That's why, you know, ultimately, what why were central banks invented? That was the that was the reason. Um, inflation, they've only inherited this inflation mantle recently. Uh originally central banks were there to basically uh help the government with its sovereign bond uh issuance. 
So uh, uh, they're coming back to their their origins in that regard. But, you know, just evidence uh, what happened in Britain um, at the time of the guilt debacle in September. Uh, the the Bank of England was operating a QT. Uh, within seconds, they reverted to a QE. <laughs> you know, they they threw the inflation remit out of the window very quickly. Yeah. And that was probably like, um, um, as you mentioned, that was a major wake up call for here in the US. I think it was a wake up call for everybody worldwide. I mean, we look at our, we, as I indicated, we, we monitor uh, 80 or 90 central banks worldwide. If you look at, uh, you know, a heat map of all those central banks and how they're moving, what you see is the beginnings of an inflection around about October of last year. Everyone is starting to become a little bit less tight uh, at the margin. I want to hear your thoughts on your more more of your outlook on the U.S. dollar and the role of the U.S. dollar globally. Okay, well, let's um, let let me sort of use that as a sort of segue into what uh what the Capital Wars book was about because there were three basic themes in Capital Wars which are all about uh, you know this question of the role of the dollar, and the first section is really saying look. Uh, let's begin with Bretton Woods. Okay, people have heard of Bretton Woods. That was the uh, international settlement um, that was uh, that took place in the U.S. Uh, in 1944. Uh, it was before the end of the war, but it was effectively trying to outline uh, outline what the world economic system would be, uh, and that is commonly uh, sort of referred to as Bretton Woods One. And people, some people, I have the idea that there's a Bretton Woods Two and maybe even a Bretton Woods Three coming up. No way is that true. We're still in Bretton Woods 1, okay? Uh, Bretton Woods 1 was basically about two or three things. It was about putting the dollar at the center of the world economic system. It was about uh, essentially using the IMF and the World Bank to police uh, payments problems in the world economy. It was about the US acting as banker to the world. Now, let's think, just uh, unpack that a little bit. What does that mean? What it means is that if the world economy needs credit, dollar credit, the U.S. provides that. And if the world economy wants dollar savings instruments, the U.S. provides that. OK, so the U.S. has got the flexibility to move both ways. And that is the efficiency of the U.S. financial system, U.S. financial markets. Now, many people would argue that the U.S. running a large trade deficit is indicative of American industry being uncompetitive, completely rubbish. It's much more about the super competitiveness of US finance because balance of payments have to balance. So if the financial sector has got a big surplus, it means that the industrial economy must by definition be in deficit. So this is much more about the strength of US finance. So the other plank is this idea that the US operates as a banker to the world. And the final point is all this was backstopped by the US military. Now, tell me which of those four points has changed since 1944. None of them. OK, true. We have moved from fixed exchange rates to floating exchange rates. But that wasn't uh, a major plank of Bretton Woods necessarily. OK, it was it was obviously there in the agreement. But actually, paradoxically, the move to floating exchange rates actually underscored the role of the US dollar even more because it basically reflected the growing power of US banks. And what you saw was an explosion in dollar liquidity really since the early 70s onwards. Uh, and it's all about the dollar system. Now, that was part one, which said that where we are is in a situation where the US dollar is dominant 
and the US financial system remains banker to the world, okay? The second part of the book was then saying, how does liquidity evolve out of this? And what we were arguing, this is much more sort of academic or wonkish stuff, but it's basically saying that what you've got to understand is that the world has moved on from high street banks. Uh, you don't look at money supply anymore. All these sort of well-rehearsed arguments is what you've got to start looking at is wholesale money, take a global view, and understand that the repo markets, for example, or the FX swap markets, are really where you're getting a lot of uh, liquidity generation now. And in particular in the US, the role of JP Morgan, as it happens, uh, in the tri-party repo system is a huge liquidity generator, potentially. Okay, And that system needs to be understood as to how liquidity evolves and is created in the system. And that's why we're seeing uh, you know, one of the themes in the book unfold, which is as the world gets bigger financially, it becomes more and more volatile. And that's because of this liquidity cycle unfolding. The third part of the book is basically about China and about the coming clash between America and China. China has put on record explicitly in black and white that they want to unseat the dollar as the major currency, not just in Asia, but probably in the world. Asia is the first step. And they want to do that. China is has got this as its goal. Okay. Now, how will they do that? The answer is it's going to be difficult and it's going to take a long time. But they'll they're trying. In the book, I said that they would they would largely look at this in terms of three ways. They would first of all change the currency denomination of trade. Okay. In other words, they'd stop invoicing in American dollars and they'd start invoicing in Chinese renminbi. Now, given the fact that China is the world's biggest importer and exporter, they can do that at the stroke of a pen, essentially overnight. Why is China currently uh, setting up swap lines? So in other words, central bank to central bank swap lines for Yuan around the region, the Asian region and Central Asian region. Reason being is they are about, at some stage, it's imminent, they're going to change to a yuan-based or renminbi trade invoicing, because that's the only reason they able to have these swap lines in place. So you know it's coming, right? Number two, they want to open up their bond market to foreign money, because basically China needs to have something that foreigners can invest in, okay? And it needs an active bond market because the bond market, think of the treasury market in America, is the benchmark against which all other assets are priced. So you've got to have an efficient bond market. They, China desperately needs to financialize its economy. Its industrial economy is mushroomed to become, you know, an el the elephant in the room. But the financial, uh, you know, the financial economy is the mouse uh, next to it, if you like, uh, to draw that and extend that analogy. It needs to develop pretty fast. And the third thing is to basically get a, a vehicle that people can trust. And that may be some sort of digital currency, which will allow peer-to-peer -peer transfers uh, between yuan and other uh, other currencies so they they basically need to do those things but ultimately china has to financialize its its economy now the question to ask is how successful will china be at beating the dollar surpassing the dollar in my view not very much it will you know it's chipping away there's no question but what china basically has to do is act as banker to the world and there is no way that china is in a position to do that now because China runs an embedded trade surplus, uh, largely because of the inequality of income distribution uh, in the Chinese economy. Uh, that is going to take 
that will be a huge structural change for them to uh, to alter that. It would effectively mean I, I would I can't see how they can do it without you know impairing or dismantling the communist system. So you know that's not going to happen overnight, unless of course it does. Um, but basically, China is uh, chipping away at the dollar's dominance. Uh, dollar he he hegemony is here for some time, I would say, uh, and China is not really going to get a serious look in now. If you come back to the sort of the conclusion in all this, what it's basically saying is that if you want to understand equity markets in general, what you've got to start to think about is the P.E. multiple of the market is driven by the Federal Reserve and the dollar system and dollar liquidity. And the E is made in China because China's economic footprint is so big. So when the PBOC in China starts to inject more liquidity, what you find is it jumpstarts the Chinese and regional economies, commodity prices start to surge, and earnings start to look a lot better globally. And that's why you're looking at the German stock market uh, racing away at the moment. Yeah. Um, wait, can you help me understand like, the, the very last part of it um, when you're talking about um, understanding equity markets and the PE multiple driven by um, liquidity? I just want to can you just re-emphasize that? I was taking notes. I want to... Um a little bit more on that yeah well i mean the the question is is how does um um how does liquidity ultimately affect stock markets and you might say well okay uh you've got two moving parts in a stock market uh you've got the earnings which everyone's familiar with and i'm arguing that china has such a big impact on the earnings because it's the dominant economy worldwide uh certainly at the margin big cyclical economy and on the other side, you've got the rating of the market, the rating of stocks, which is the PE multiple. Now, the PE multiple is very sensitive to liquidity. And to take a sort of hyper example, let's look at um, technology stocks. Well, as I said, technology stocks are like a long duration investment, uh, like an, uh, if you like, uh, uh, an undated bond or perpetual bond. And so they're extremely sensitive to slight movements in rates, uh, bond yields or liquidity. And that's exactly uh, that's the, if you like the uh, the extreme. But the stock market overall is moving in the same way. So if you expand liquidity or you drop interest rates, you will find the P multiple goes up. And equally, if you tighten liquidity, the P multiple comes down. Got it. Um, another thing that you brought up in one of your answers was when you were just talking about like kind of understanding like uh, how liquidity works you were mentioning like um repo markets for example and um like all these huge liquidity generators out there um and understanding how it evolves and as the this was interesting to me um as the world gets bigger it becomes more volatile are we going to become increasingly volatile or is this just kind of going to be like the new paradigm that we are dealing with like we'll have more crises ultimately or is there a way to make the world less volatile? Would love to explore that theme with you. Well, I think that can you uh, can you go backwards in history? And I think the answer is probably not. So we're in an evolving financial system, and there would have to be extreme regulation uh, for us to avoid the path we're going down. And you know, effectively, what we what's happened is that the world has moved from uh, a situation where credit was largely given on trust to a situation where credit is now dependent on collateral. Now, 
if you're a, a mortgagee, in other words, a homeowner with a mortgage, you're familiar with collateral because basically collateral is the value of your house against which the bank is, is lending, right? So that's a collateral-based loan. But prior to the global financial crisis, um, we used to see quite a lot of non-collateralized lending, uh, but non-collateralized lending is fast disappearing. Most lending now is collateralized lending. So it's either against a, a real estate or it's against a, a security like a treasury bond or a German bund or maybe even an extremist in equity. It's possible to do that. OK, if you're if you're margining on the stock market, you can basically use equity. OK, but the thing is, the haircuts move, the margin requirements alter, etc. And the reason that that becomes an important issue is that what this does is it makes the entire financial system very, very pro-cyclical. So in other words, if you get a sell-off in the market, uh, then what happens is that margining uh, requirements start to step up. In other words, haircuts on the collateral will rise, et cetera. And that means that you may be forced to sell in a falling market. And so it drives the market down again. Now, some of your listeners may be familiar with the so-called LDI crisis in the UK that coincided with the guilt debacle. In fact, it was probably a precipitating factor. And the LDI is uh, refers to liability-driven investments. And basically what these vehicles were, were uh, there were products that were bought by pension funds to try and match better match their liabilities, but they were very leveraged. So what happened is that when the guilt market sold off, these pension funds were forced to find more margin and they had to basically sell even more gilts to meet their margin requirements. It pushed the market down. So what you've got are these sort of spirals uh, going on. And that's an important thing. Now, what adds to all this problem is that we're living in a world where there is this huge, huge debt, right? I mean, this is the problem. Why did we get into this mess? Because central bankers and, you know, we can name names here, but, uh, you know, people like Alan Greenspan, Ben Bernanke decided they wanted to have near zero interest rates. And in Britain, the Chancellor, George Osborne, had this crazy idea of following an austerity policy. And what that does, the austerity policy is pushing government austerity, is pushing more and more debt onto the private sector. Low interest rates that Bernanke and Greenspan, uh, you know, oversaw effectively encourages, incentivizes people to take on more debt. So what's happened is the debt mountain has just grown and grown and grown. Now, why is that a problem? That's a problem because with debt, you either repay it, not much chance of that, I don't think, or you have to roll it over. So if you've got a five-year debt on average, which is actually where the world economy is at the moment, and you're sitting on a debt pile of about 250 a uh, trillion dollars or so, okay, what you've got to do is you've got to roll that. So you're talking about rolling something like 65 to $70 trillion of debt every year, okay? I mean, this is a huge amount. How can you roll debt? You need balance sheet capacity to do that. And what that is, is, is liquidity. So what you need is lots of liquidity. So what you've got into is a vicious circle here, which is basically saying, the more debt we have, the more liquidity we need. If we don't get that liquidity, you get a financial crisis because all these uh, financial crises we've been looking at in the last two decades have been refinancing crises. 
And if the liquidity comes to offset the uh, the role or to, to supplement the role in the debt, that liquidity will spill out somewhere and it spills out into asset markets. And if there's lots of liquidity, it spills over into real economy. So you get surging asset prices and then inflation in the high street. And that's pretty much what we've seen. Now, what we're emphasizing here is the quantity of liquidity. Bear in mind, I'm not mentioning interest rates. Interest rates are a secondary consideration. If you've got a home and with a mortgage and you need to roll that mortgage, in other words, it comes up for renewal, you need to roll that mortgage. You need to find somebody you can roll it with. In other words, another bank that will lend to you. Not so worried about what the interest rate is. You just determined you're going to get the roll because if you don't get the roll, you're homeless. And so this is the same with debt. If you don't roll the debt over, you'll default. And if you get a default, you get a cascade of default through the system. You get systemic risk. And that's the situation we've got into. So you can see what I'm saying here. Why as the world gets bigger financially, it becomes more and more cyclical. So these financial crises are going to start to, you know, appear more regularly uh, in the future. And as a result of that, central banks and the Treasury have got to get to grips with or control the bond market. Now, this leads on to another, you know, side avenue, if you like, which is to say, look, let's do it. Right. Japan is the canary in the coal mine because everything that you've seen in Japan has been translated back into the US or Europe a few years later, whether that is uh, demographics, aging demographics, whether it's disinflation, deflation, QE, zero interest rates, yield curve control, it's coming to a high street near you soon. And the fact is that Japan has been playing around with yield curve control for about five years now. I would argue that yield curve control is actually in nascent form already existing uh, in Europe and in the US. Uh, and maybe this is what the Federal Reserve is doing at the moment uh, in terms of the, the Fed's balance sheet is trying to control uh, the Treasury market. And, you know, there was um, uh, a very clear uh, statement that was um, actually delivered in a conference by Brookings in, in September of last year, where a number of notable U.S. academics were asked the question, what is the level, the minimum level of U.S. banks reserves? that banks need to hold and the Federal Reserve needs to supply. Now, the answer they gave was about two and a half trillion US dollars. OK. Our figures are a tad higher than that, maybe about 2.62 more. But hey, but I mean, this is a ballpark, pretty much the same. Currently, US bank reserves are three trillion. But what you've got is the Treasury general account, which is an item on the Fed balance sheet, which is swinging around because of the upcoming debt ceiling. And that will go up during the tax season and then be drawn down significantly, et cetera. That extra volatility in the Treasury general account is probably giving us a warning that bank reserves may be more uh, volatile than we've seen for some time, potentially. And therefore, the Federal Reserve needs to have a margin of error uh, in that calculation. And therefore, holding bank reserves at about $3 trillion is very important. And that's what I would suggest they're doing. So I think they're basically operating now in a way which is, if you like, a quasi yield curve control that's going on uh, in the US. Uh, you know, they're not obviously not targeting, well, let's say obviously not, they're probably not targeting rates or yields in the way that they did before, but there's clear manipulation. And if you roll out a few years, what you've got is a situation where 
the US fiscal arithmetic, as we know, doesn't really add up. There's going to be a lot of issuance coming through because of aging demographics and the fact that, um, you know, uh, basically mandatory spending starts to skyrocket. And with aging demographics, the working age population, which is the tax base, is shrinking the whole time. And so what you've got is very uh, unattractive uh, fiscal arithmetic with a lot of issuance coming. That is a threat to the financial system because basically it means that there's upward pressure on yields. Now, I keep saying, and I'll say again, that the US is the, you know, is the uh, you know, cleanest shirt in the laundry here. Others are in much, much worse shape. Yeah, like others are in worse shape. Um, just can we like, go a little bit further about this, um, the fiscal arithmetic here in the US not adding up? Um, I want to hear just a tad bit more um, on that. And do you think, uh, I'm just asking here, uh, do we need even more reserves? What do you think? Or like, what? I want to hear a bit more on this. Well, I think there there are there are there are two separate things. I mean, one is what what is the level of reserves or liquidity in the U.S. money markets, which is the point about what the bank reserves and what Fed liquidity is trying to engineer. And I think the fact is that we are we're in a world where you need liquidity because of all this debt. Now, in Britain, uh, in the nineteenth century, sort of way back then, um, there was um, uh, the the financial markets were not dissimilar in many ways to the structure of financial markets in the world today. Kind of paradox, but it's true. Uh, and that is because repos and bills were very prominent then because London was a big trading center. The bill on London was a major financial uh, instrument. And that's how the situation grew up. And in, uh, I think it was around 1866, there was a major default uh, with uh, a bank called Overend Gurney which uh, failed and the Bank of England refused to lend money to over on over in Gurney and it collapsed and it was a big financial disaster. Now, over in Gurney was the biggest financial institution in the world then. It was equivalent to a giant shadow bank and it was let to fail and there was a financial catastrophe. OK, out of the, uh, the embers of that uh, financial catastrophe, uh, Walter Badgett, who was a British journalist who um, the U.S., Author Jim Grant has written uh, a fantastic biography uh, of uh, of Walter Badgett. Walter Badgett came up with a rule for central bankers, and that rule was to lend freely against good collateral at a high rate of interest. In other words, create lots of liquidity, have good collateral, but charge a high rate of interest for it. What have our central bankers been doing for the last decade? Exactly the reverse, right? but maybe they're now getting the message that they need to create more liquidity and have more liquidity in the system. So that's that side of it. On the fiscal arithmetic, uh, I said the US is the, you know, is the um, cleanest shirt in the laundry, uh, but let, let's look at some comparisons. Look at the risks that the US is nearing here. Uh, and let's be clear about this. In Britain's case, you can work out um, uh, the idea of uh, basically how much um, tax revenue covers uh, mandatory, uh, oh, sorry, tax revenue minus mandatory spending, how much that gap covers the interest bill, okay? So you've got all your tax revenue, income taxes, uh, excise taxes, whatever. You subtract from that the mandatory spending that is there for social security, uh, what education the public sector does, et cetera, Medicare, blah, 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 right? And you're left with a residual. How much does that cover the current interest bill on the debt? Let's go back to Britain. Before the celebrated Liz Truss budget, 
that covered it 1.8 times. Okay, so big healthy margin. By the time of the budget, after the budget, prospectively that went down to 1.2, and the British gilt market collapsed. Right? What is that figure today in America? The answer is 0.8. Right? And on the CBO's figures, Congressional Budget Office figures, goes down to 0.3 in about five years' time. So that's the problem. Yeah. Uh, debt's got to be issued, and therefore yield curve control is coming in some form. Or the Federal Reserve is going to have to be active again in the debt markets by actually buying treasuries. And I suspect they will. Yeah. Um. Just like another quick follow on though, like, um, yeah, you're just mentioning like our debt situation here and like, um, we're op like operating at a, a deficit year after year, um, with yield curve control coming from the Fed. What is that? Can you help me understand like what that looks like or what some of the, could be some of like the implications of that? Well, it could be. I mean, it, it can take many shapes and forms. And it's a sort of generic catch-all to talk about yield curve control. It could be uh, it could be targeting a certain rate. It could be trying to do things to keep the 10-year bond below a certain threshold. It could be that. It could be, uh, you know, explicitly saying to financial institutions that they have to, have to hold minimum levels of treasuries. I mean, that's more or less there already, but that could clearly be ratcheted up. Um, it could be... In extremists saying that there are exchange controls, I mean, that won't happen. Foreign exchange controls on foreign investment, that won't happen. But it could be saying things like, you know, U.S. institutions are forbidden to invest in China. I mean, this is a sort of backdoor way of keeping money at home, obviously, uh, or various other guises. It's just saying that the authorities have to get more control over the sovereign debt markets because the sovereign debt markets are the are the big thing. That's what That's what moves or controls the financial system. The U.S. Treasury uh, market is absolutely paramount, needs to be, uh, you know, carefully uh, controlled or manipulated or stroked or whatever you like to say. Yeah. Take care of it. It's yeah. important. Well, Michael, I have learned a ton. I, I don't know how many pages of notes I have, but I, a, a lot of notes here. Just um, I feel like I learned a lot from you. So I thank you so much for that. But I want to just give you a few minutes. Um for some parting thoughts uh obviously let folks know where they can find you pick up your book and whatnot but also like if you have any parting thoughts um for the audience at home uh, listening and watching things that they should certainly be thinking about yeah i think that the uh i mean in terms of um, of how to get in touch with us uh we've got a website which is uh, crossbordercapital.com uh we've got a twitter handle which is at crossbordercap there's also a LinkedIn. Uh, I've got a LinkedIn site as well. So uh, all that's available. Um, if you want to read the book, uh, it's called Capital Wars. It was published by Palgrave Macmillan in 2020. Uh, it's a sort of semi-academic tone. So I wouldn't necessarily say this is going to be uh, light reading. I mean, it may, uh, may be good bedtime reading because it might send you to sleep at times. But uh, it's basically talking about, as I said, the whole idea about uh, the evolution of the global financial system, how liquidity is created and the upcoming threat of China. Uh, all those aspects are sort of in the book. Uh, and I tend to think in terms of sort of a parting thought about what to do now, I would say that um, think of it in these terms, liquidity drives financial markets, financial markets drive the economy. Um, I don't think that uh, forecasting the economy is an easy job. And I don't think it really helps us very much in understanding financial markets. It's all about liquidity and the flow of money 
And that's pretty much what we do. And if you want a sort of a, a quick and dirty heads up as to the sort of things to look at, if you want to watch barometers of liquidity, you know, there's no one unique one. I mean, we we obviously do detailed monitoring of liquidity, but, you know, look at some of the liquidity barometers, look at crypto, look at gold, uh, look at technology stocks, uh, look at the slope of the yield curve. All those factors are probably at the end of the day, pretty good barometers to say that liquidity is moving up. And if liquidity is moving up, it's a risk on environment. And then you want more higher beta investments. You want to take more, more duration, et cetera, as they say in bond speak, uh, and take on more risk. And then when the liquidity cycle starts to turn down, you want to do the opposite. The liquidity cycle lasts, as our research says, probably about sort of around six years. Yeah. Well, I read the book and I should read it again, too. And um, it's it's a fascinating read. I certainly learned a lot. And a lot of it's still over my head. Obviously, you could tell that. But um I really appreciate you so much, Michael, for coming on. Certainly learned a lot from you. Um, we'll definitely start paying more attention to liquidity. And I, again, I highly recommend the book and for folks to follow you as well. Um, Michael Howell, CEO of Cross Border Capital and author of Capital Wars. Thank you so much for being so generous with your time and your ideas. I really, really appreciate it. Great, Judah. Great pleasure to be on. Thanks so much for the invitation. Thanks, Michael. Hey, everyone. I really hope you enjoyed that video. Be sure to hit that like button, the subscribe, and that bell so you won't miss any new videos.